Welcome to the Arise Church Podcast. At Arise, we're a community of imperfect people, pursuing and experiencing a transformative relationship with Jesus and one another. For more information, you can find us online at ariseonline.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Arise. Man, it's good to be here with you. And as, as Craig said, my name's Tom. And uh, my wife and I, about eight and a half years ago, we started an organization called Restoration Generation. We're really, the focus of the ministry is obviously on Jesus, but it's really on restoring a generation of relationships, both vertically with the Lord as well as horizontally with one another. And after working over 20 years in full-time youth ministry now, um, the reason why we just felt like God was leading us to do this was because so many of the students that I've worked with across the country have known nothing but broken relationships. And it, it hugely impacts the way that they view their ability to have relationships, whether that be now or in the future. It causes them to look at how they view uh, their role in a community, their role in a church. It causes them to really question like who they are and who God is. And we've just seen God do a lot of cool things in the last eight and a half years. I've been able to go into 28 different states. We speak in uh, public schools all over the country on bullying, not like how to, but how to avoid that kind of thing. Um, and then we, uh, we pulled together um, talent and, and different things from different areas of the, of the, of the uh, communities there. And we usually do a big outreach at the end where we share Christ with families. And, and uh, then on top of that, we do conferences and festivals. And God just opened up so many doors. And then this, this Men's Summit thing started really out of a vision uh, that God gave me so long ago, just also just because of, of my story, which I'm not going to go into a ton today, but um, about how we're sending so many kids home to destructive environments, to environments where dads are not necessarily present, whether that be physically or emotionally or spiritually. So we said, what if we could maybe help the foundation of where we're sending students home to? And so that's where the ResGen Men's Summit was birthed out of. The first year, we had 143 men. And as Craig mentioned, uh, we did. We dominated about 150 pounds of pork um, uh, with 143 men. That's pretty, that's pretty good, I think. I mean... I, I thought that would at least get one amen. But anyway, um, uh, then last year uh, we, we did it and we had 368 men. And this year we're praying for six to 800 men that will give up a Saturday from 8 to 2, from 8 to 2 to come, just get poured into. I'm so excited the skit guys are coming. Ted Cunningham, who's a pastor and a comedian out of Branson, Missouri, he's going to be there. Um, he's, he's absolutely dynamite. Uh, Wayne Simeon, who was a former KU All-American and a Big 12 Player of the Year, and then w- went on and, and was drafted in the first round, played uh, alongside LeBron and won a championship. And LeBron, I spent um, uh, a day with him last week, and, and he's coming, going to share God's heart, and, uh, and then I'm going to share as well. But it's just going to be a great day. And ladies, I haven't forgot about you because the night before, the night before, uh, we're going to do a couples event called Date Night Comedy. And so the night before, uh, husbands and wives, uh, those that are looking to get married, we're going to put on uh, an event called Date Night Comedy the night before with Ted Cunningham. And it's going to be just a really fun night of laughter, of learning, of, of loving one another, and, and resourcing marriages as well. So Date Night Comedy on the 25th of January, the Men's Summit from 8 to 2 on the 26th of January. So invite you to, to hold those, those dates on your calendar. Uh, you can visit our website, resgen.org, for more information about that stuff. And Arise will be getting out information about that as well. But that's not necessarily what I'm here for today. 
What I'm here for is because I just want to share God's word with you. And I was so honored when Craig called and said, hey, would you be willing to do that? And I jumped at the chance to come and share God's word with you. So as we get started, being that we are in the month of October, and it sometimes can be known as a month that's focused on scary things obviously because of Halloween's presence during this month. So I want you to think back real quickly about one of the scariest moments in your life. Maybe it was this morning when you opened up your your, uh, drapes and you looked outside. You said, oh man, I'm not ready for this. Maybe for some of you, you got to go way back into the mental archives and think back to a situation that maybe you don't really want to think back to. Maybe for some of you, that scary moment happened a little bit more recently. I've had some pretty scary moments in my life for sure, but nothing quite compares to what took place in 2006, in the month of January. My family and I, we were flying from Denver, Colorado, to Portland, Oregon on standby. And any of you that have ever flown on standby, you know that that can be a scary situation in and of itself, just wondering, are you going to ever get on a plane? Well, in this specific situation, it was uh, very early in the morning. It was about 7 in the morning, and we were trying to get from Denver to Portland. And and Laura and Chase, my youngest, who Chase was about about four or six months at the time, uh, he, uh, he and Laura were able to get on a flight headed to Portland. Unfortunately for, for myself and, and my oldest son, Isaiah, who was about four and a half at the time, we were unable to get on that flight. Even more unfortunate was that the next possible plane that we could get on was going to be at about 8.45 p.m., roughly 14 hours later than it currently was. To make matters even worse, I had the worst sinus infection I've ever had in my life, and I had pink eye in both eyes. I literally looked like one of the characters from The Walking Dead, okay? I'm not kidding. It was, it was really bad. What about 8 p.m.? It came time for me to go and talk with the very nice flight attendant, asking her if, if it's of any, is it possible for us to get on this flight. So I told Isaiah at that time, I said, son, I need to go and talk to that very kind woman up there. So what I need you to do is I need you to sit right where you're sitting right now. He's like, right here, daddy? I said, yes, right there. And I need you to sit perfectly still. I need you to sit just like this. And he said, just like this, daddy? I said, yes, just like that. After I felt like he understood the instructions, I I proceeded to go up to the counter and talk to the very nice flight attendant up there, the, the gal that was in charge of the gate. And she said, as long as you don't breathe on me, as long as you don't touch me, and you don't ever come into my presence again, I will let you get on this flight on your way to Portland, Oregon. I was excited, man. I was so pumped. And I, I, I quickly turned around to tell Isaiah of the joyous news that I just received. But very quickly, my joy turned into horror as I saw that my son wasn't there. Frantically, I began to look everywhere. I looked up, down, left, right. I looked under chairs. I was screaming his name, Isaiah! Isaiah! Couldn't find him. I kept yelling his name. And then all of a sudden... I heard the beautiful sound of of this little old lady's voice that said, are you looking for him? And at the end of her shaking bony finger, standing out in the middle of the concourse in between gates in the Denver airport was my son, Isaiah. I ran to him as fast as the walking dead of of my person could. (laughs) And I picked him up and I held him. And then I held him out and I said, I told you to stay in the chair. And I hugged him again. 
And then I held him out and I said, dude, chair, you, what happened? And he said, daddy, I wanted to stay in the chair, but, but I thought I saw one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles running in the hallway and, and I had to find out which one it was, whether or not it was Raphael, Leonardo, Donatello, or Michelangelo. You had a good excuse at least, right? <laughs> you know, I was probably only separated from him for probably about 15 seconds all told but it was the longest 15 seconds I've ever experienced in my life. And as I think about how that experience unfolded, the problem wasn't that I didn't give Isaiah instructions, right? Because I had. And the problem wasn't that I was even unclear in those instructions because, as I told you, I even modeled what I wanted and what I needed for him to do. No, the problem was that my almost five-year-old son got distracted, And that led him to doing what he wanted to do instead of what his father had asked him to do. You know, to be honest with you, there are still times in my life, I'm going to turn 43 here next month, and there are still times in my life where I can act like a four-year-old. Like a four-year-old that is easily distracted and does what I want to do even when I've been given instructions to do otherwise. But the instructions that I'm talking about here this morning that have been given to me, they've been given to me not just by my earthly father, although those are important. No, the instructions that I'm talking about this morning are by my heavenly father, by God. And those instructions are found right here, are found in the Bible, are found in God's word. So I hope you're ready this morning because we're going to dig deep and we're going to look at several of the instructions, several of the scriptures that God has given us so that we can walk through today and look at what does living a life of faith look like? Not just what carrying a label of faith looks like, but what living a saved life entails for all of those who follow Christ. Now, Some of you might be saying, well, Tom, Hold on a second, because in Romans 10, 9, we're told that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. So if that's all there really is to being saved, confession and belief, then, then why do we have to look at what living a life of faith looks like? And it's a good question. And here's the answer for you. Because after we come into a life-saving relationship with Christ, friends, Our faith is to result in us living a distinctive, transformed life. A life that recognizes that not only have we been saved from something, specifically sin and eternal separation from the one true God who's absolutely done everything necessary in order to be with you, but also that we are saved for something. And that's to live a life that that demonstrates Christ is, is working in our life. A life that that no longer lives by selfishness and and empty excuses, but instead is lived full of God-ordered activity. A pursuit of of becoming more like Christ, like we just sang in that, in that, that song right before we got up here. And a life full of spirit-led obedience. Because of that truth, here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. If you don't remember anything else that I talk with you today, I'm going to talk with you about a lot, but if you don't remember anything else that I say this morning, here's what I want you to remember. Faith results in obedience. Those four words, if you don't remember anything else, I want you to remember faith results in obedience. 
in a second, we're going to be reading a, a section of Scripture in the book of James, where James talks about faith and action. And as we do that, it's so important this morning that we don't make the mistake of believing that our actions are what save us. Okay, because here's the deal. Good deeds and our actions can never earn us our salvation. Okay, Jesus has done everything necessary in order for us to receive salvation. But at the same time, our faith and our action are never to be separated. See, our actions, as we're going to talk about this morning, are instead to serve as a verification or a proof of the saving work that Jesus Christ has done in our lives through our faith in him. Another thing that I just want to just point out real quick is that, that James's primary audience when he was writing this book was to believers, okay? People who believed in God, who said that they were following Christ. That's why in, in many places throughout the book of James, he says, my brothers and my sisters. It's because the audience that he was addressing, most commonly, they identified themselves as members in the family of God. But that being said, I recognize that, that some of you, you might still be on your faith journey as far as just really exploring whether or not faith is for you. Maybe you're still checking this whole Jesus thing out. Others of you, you've been following Jesus for as long as you can remember. For some of you, maybe you're somewhere in between. But regardless where you are on that, that faith timeline, I want you to know that God has something in store for every single one of us. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna pray and ask God to give us a specific word that we need to hear in a very personal and rich way this morning. Could you pray with me? Father, thanks for your word. I want to thank you for this morning, and I pray now that you would just meet us where we're at in a very personal way. God, would we, would we recognize your presence in this room? We know you're here. And would, you, would we recognize and open ourselves up to the very specific and personal word that you want to share with us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to James chapter 2. Um, you're welcome to do that on your phones, on your, uh, you know, the paper Bibles, whatever you got. We're also going to put this uh, uh, section of Scripture up on the screen for you as well. We're going to look at James chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 14 through 22 and then, and then uh, verse 26 as well. So this is what James writes. He writes this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but you don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say goodbye and have a good day. Stay warm and eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. Now someone may argue, some people have faith and others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds, I will show you my faith by my good deeds. You say you have faith, for you believe that there is one God. Well, good for you. Even the demons believe this, and they tremble in terror. How foolish. Can't you see that faith without good deeds is useless? Don't you remember that our ancestor Abraham was shown to be right with God by his actions when he offered his son on the altar? You see, his faith and his actions, they work together. His actions made his faith complete. Just as the body is dead without breath, verse 26 says, so also faith is dead without good works. And I'm telling you, James, 
he definitely blew some minds when he dropped this truth on the people, okay? I mean, think about what he's saying here. What he's saying is that faith that is merely just a label and that does not reveal itself in works or in actions and a changed lifestyle that glorifies God and exemplifies the love and the life of Christ is not worth anything. In other words, it's dead. I love the way that uh, Bible scholar Douglas Moo puts it when he says this. Faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. Let that sink in for a second. Faith that doesn't work, doesn't work. And James was so adamant about this truth right here that he actually says it in one way or another four different times in this section of Scripture. Verse 14, 17, 20, and 26. And even though each of the examples that he gives in that portion of Scripture that ties to the truth are, are a little different, each example really comes down to the same thing in every, in every case, and that's obedience. Doing what God has instructed us to do and what Jesus himself modeled us to do. John R.W. Stott, in his commentary on the book of James, he says this, a, tr- a true faith produces results, in particular, the costly and holy, trustful obedience to the word of God. So with the remainder of my time here this morning, I want us to briefly look at at one of the examples of what I think is probably one of the greatest acts of holy, trustful obedience in the entire Bible. And it's a story that, that James mentions in verses 21 to 24, the story of Abraham and his son Isaac. And to do that effectively, what I want us to do is I, 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 want, to, I want to give you just a little bit of a background as to who Abraham, or Abram as he was first called, who the dude really is. We really start to get to know him way back in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, when the Lord comes to Abraham, or Abram at the time, and he says this. He says, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram, who, by the way, was 75 years old when this little convo took place. Okay, so for those of you that maybe you're a little bit more seasoned in your ears and you think that maybe God's done speaking to you and having you, you know, do some cool things for him. Newsflash, he's not. So Abram, at age 75, he hears God say this to him. And he moves out in faith and does as the Lord told him to do. That's that's some pretty crazy stuff, right? Well, what's even crazier is that this is actually only the first of seven interactions that takes place over the next 10 chapters from chapter 12 to 22 between Abraham and God. And starting with that very first conversation, over the course of those 10 10 chapters, Abraham, who was known to be a man of faith, okay, that's, that's what he was known as, that was his label, but he was continually called to put that faith into action. To go to new levels of obedience in order, in other words, uh, to not just talk about it, but to be about it. To put feet to his faith. So knowing that, real quick, I want to look at Genesis chapter 22. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac. 
And I'm not going to put this up there just for the length of, of, uh, of what it would be on the screen. So I'm just going to read from, straight from the scripture. Genesis chapter 22, uh, a story that's probably pretty common that many of us have heard. But let's ask God to allow us to listen with fresh ears and see with fresh eyes this morning. Genesis chapter 22, this is, this is what we read. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. He bound his, uh, and then, after that, he, he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. What an unbelievable story of active faith resulting in a holy, trustful obedience. What I want us to do is I want us to, to really unpack some of the key ingredients or elements that led to Abraham's obedience. And as we look at these this morning, I think God wants to ask, how can we put these in place in our own life? What are these ingredients? What are these elements? What can these look like in our life where we're at right now? And the first key is this. He heard God's voice. Abraham heard God's voice. Not only did he hear it, friends, but he responded. Obedience starts with hearing God's voice. In verse one, Abraham hears God call his name, and, and, and how does he respond? Three words. Here I am. He heard God's voice, and he immediately responded, here I am, God. One of the things that I consistently marvel at when it comes to God, and there's a lot to marvel at, no question. But ever since the beginning of time, God has continually strived to have a relationship and speak with his people. It started with Adam and Eve, moved on to Moses, Abraham, and guess what? It continues to us today. So simply, my question for you this morning is this. Are you making a practice of listening for God's voice? 
of seeking his instruction in your life, of putting action to your faith. Abraham is such a, a powerful example of someone with, who stayed in consistent communication with God. And because of that, his relationship with him and his faith wasn't just a label, it was a lifestyle. I know some of you are probably saying, well, Tom, you know, look, I, I've never heard God speak, okay? I mean, I've never had that kind of experience where I hear God's calling my name, so I don't think he really speaks to me. And I say, okay, I hear that. I've actually never audibly heard God speak to me in, in that way as well. But let me pose to you a different question. Are you creating space or margin in your life so that you can hear from him? How are you at, at creating space where you make yourself available to hear from him? Maybe not necessarily in an audible way, but in a way that, that you know that God is speaking. One of the main ways God speaks to us is simply by the time that we invest in, in, in his word and in communication with God in, in prayer. So, so how are you doing It's setting time outside of this hour, outside of the Sunday morning you know, community experience for those kinds of things? Because here, here's the truth, okay? Here's the reality. Your relationship with God and your ability to hear his voice will not grow to the level that he desires if you're content to restrict that growth merely to Sunday morning. God has so much more growth, so many more things that he wants to share with you outside of this hour. Is this hour important? No question. But you know what else is important? 7 a.m. at your breakfast bar while you're eating your Cheerios with your Bible open. Tuesday night when you're having family prayer in your living room instead of just brainlessly watching Netflix again. Saturday mornings, as you serve as, uh, alongside one, of another, one another, benefiting the poor in the community or, or doing some sort of project with no personal gain. Even Jesus understood that, that his time with God was important, which is why in Mark chapter 1, after a night of staying up to the wee hours of the morning, ministering, casting out demons, healing the sick, feeding the hungry, doing all the cool things that Jesus did, the scripture says that after he did all of that, very early in the morning, the very next day, while it was still dark out, he got up to go to be with the Father to hear his voice. Don't you think that if, if Jesus made that a priority in his life, that we should probably make that a priority for ours as well. Hearing God's voice takes time. So maybe, maybe your challenge this morning is, is to adjust your schedule a little bit for God instead of asking him to adjust his schedule to yours. Second thing, second key ingredient. First one is that he heard God's voice. Second one is that he trusted God had a plan. One of the things that we have the luxury of is that uh, we know that God was testing Abraham. Verse 1 says, a little while later, God tested Abraham. Okay, so we know that. And further, we know the outcome. Okay, we know that God was going to provide a ram. But Abraham didn't know that. Okay, he didn't know that stuff, really. So put yourself in his sandals for a minute. Okay, think about, think about what was going on in his head and in his heart as he and his only son were ascending the mountain. Think about, you know, the, the pit in his stomach. 
the nausea that was, that was probably overtaking his body, the, the tears that were probably welling up in his eyes as he built the altar that was to serve as the ultimate sign of devotion to the Lord. But Abraham, even though all that was going on, he had such an extreme trust in God that he never questioned if God knew what he was doing because he trusted that God had a plan. Remember verse five, he, he says to the servants, he says, I want you to, to stay here with the donkey while I and the boy, we go over there. We are going to worship and then we are gonna come back to you. See, Abraham took into account God's track record and he knew, even though he didn't know like how it was gonna work out, he knew that there was a plan in the works. Let me ask you, how... How much, how much do you trust God? Like, wh- where do you place your trust? Maybe that's a better question. Where do you place your trust? Is it in God's plan or is it in your own? Is it in your abilities or in God's? Is, is your trust in, in your paycheck or is it in his provision? Mike, do you guys, uh, do you guys sing uh, Oceans here? You ever sing that song, Oceans? Powerful song, right? Fantastic song. Have you ever stopped to just really, like, studied those words in that song? Like, they're they're pretty, pretty powerful words. Listen to some of the words in that song. You call me out upon the waters, the great unknown where feet may fail. And there I find you in the mystery, in oceans deep, my faith will stand. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith would be made stronger in the presence of my Savior. Friends, has your faith resulted in that level of trust? Think about it. If everything in your life was stripped away, your job, your relationships, your money, whatever else we're tempted to cling to and build our identity around, if all of that were stripped away, would your faith still stand? Can you, like like Abraham, say to God this morning, here I am when he calls, and honestly say, no matter where you lead me, God, I will follow. No matter what you call me to do, I will do it. I remember when the Lord was calling uh, Laura and I to start ResGen eight and a half years ago. And um, it was a time that it made no sense to start a, a new nonprofit organization. It was during a recession. It was a time where I did not feel at all that we needed another nonprofit in Sioux Falls. Somehow I did, like this is kind of like a mini Colorado Springs here. And, um, and it just was, it was a, a, a a time where I really struggled with this whole idea. But about a year and a half, of, of, after a year and a half of dragging my feet, God made it so abundantly clear that this was what I was supposed to do. How he did that, even after so many people had come and told me that I needed to do it, even after I had lawyers come and say, Tom, you know what, we'll help you do all the paperwork, we'll help you do all these kinds of things. I'd have people out of the blue come and say, hey, if you ever get in a situation where you need to raise support, I want you to come talk to me. I mean, all these different kinds of signs, but it took 
on, on uh, an experience that happened three nights in a row. I had a dream one night where I was standing before the Lord. We're told in Scripture that we're all going to do it. We're going to give an account for our lives. And I was standing before the Lord, and, and he said, man, Tom, you're in. Well done. And as I was getting ready to walk by him and go find my mansion, and I knew it was going to be pretty sweet, <laughs> um, I was walking by, and he said, I just wish you would have trusted me more. I had more territory. I had more ways that I wanted to use your talents and gifts. I just wish you would have trusted me. And I woke up. I thought, man, I'm never getting pizza from that place again. (laughs) Next night, same exact dream to a T. I woke up, said, well, looks like I can't go to that Mexican restaurant either. Third night in a row, same exact dream to a T. And I got up the next morning and I told Laura, I said, we got to do it. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know what it's going to be called. I don't know if anybody will ever bring me in to speak. I don't, I don't know what the world's going to happen, but we have no choice. We got to do it. And she said, finally, I've only been telling you to do it for a year and a half, right? Oh man, they are so much smarter than us, men. Okay. Just, we do, that's why we do a men's summit. Okay. But anyway, it was such a powerful experience that, that has it been easy? No, it hasn't been easy. But it's been worth it because God has been with us every step of the way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's my, it's my wife's life verse. Probably some of yours as well. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Guys, listen to me this morning. You can trust God. Maybe you just need that truth. You can trust him. He cares for you. He loves you, and he wants to use you in ways that you never thought possible. First key is that Abraham heard God's voice. Second one is that he trusted that he had a plan. And the last one, real quickly, and then I'll wrap up, is, is he followed through. He followed through. Scripture says, when they reached the place that God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear, in other words, you trust and obeyed because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham was already living out what Jesus himself would say a couple thousand years later in the book of Luke. Luke 14, says, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, or in other words, lay it on the altar, you can't be my disciple. Think about how many excuses Abraham could have come up with from the time that God gave the instructions in verse one to the time that that altar was built. I mean, just that hike alone from that location to Mount Moriah was 50 miles That was a 50-mile journey that he took with his son. He wasn't getting an Uber. He didn't get on a little scooter. I mean, they they hoofed that. That's a lot of miles. That's a lot of time to get lost or to change your mind or to say, you know what? Maybe I didn't hear God correctly, okay? But those excuses never came because he knew that even though he didn't understand the why, he understood the who 
And he knew that the who would be faithful to him as he continued to walk in obedience to him. As R. Kent Hughes says, Abraham's obedient faith was not isolated just to the offering of Isaac. Instead, faith that led to action was a continual characteristic of his life, both before and after that event. John 8, 31, Jesus says, you are truly my disciples if you go to church faithfully. No, he didn't say that. Oh, I know, he said, you're truly my disciples if, if you just believe in me. No, I mean, that's a good start, but it doesn't say that either. You're truly my disciples if you put Christian on, on Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, any other social media account we may have. No, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what he says either. Now, what Jesus says is, you're truly my disciples if you obey my commands. Abraham didn't obey because he had to. He obeyed because he wanted to. Because of his love for God, he chose to. And why God desires that you and I, that we would choose to as well. See, faith, friends, results in obedience. We're going to sing together again this morning and just worship the Lord. And as, as we're worshiping, I just... I just want to ask you, what's God saying to you? We prayed at the front end that God would have a very specific word for you in a very personal and rich way. So what's God saying to you? What act of, of obedience is he calling you to this morning? Maybe he's calling you to a, a new level of, of seeking to hear his voice. A new level of, of placing your trust in him and in, in whatever way he's calling you to do that. Maybe for some of you, his voice is saying, you know what, your life is, is not being lived in the, the way that I would desire to live that, and he wants you just to come and just to lay your life down at the altar and say, it's not my life anymore, Lord, it's, it's yours. Whatever God is calling you to this morning, my prayer is, is, is that we respond. What Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle is distracting you right now? How are, what's taking your focus off of the Lord? Let's commit to as we go into this time of worship that we don't just be hearers of the word, as James says, but let's commit to being doers of the word. And we live what God is calling us to do, not just when it's comfortable here, but in a few moments when we step foot into that very early winter wonderland as well. Let me pray for us. Father, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you that, um, that you never stop loving us. God, I want to thank you that, that uh, you can use a morning like this to, call, to uh, call us to new levels of trust and obedience. God, I thank you that you're worthy of our trust, that, 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 we, can, that we can trust you, that you are faithful through whatever we're going through right now. God, there's, a, there's a, a, a point in my message where I talked about how Abraham understood your track record. I think right now there's just some people in this room that need to be reminded of your track record, that you are faithful, that you've, seen, you've walked with them, you've seen them through some difficult times, and that even right now as they're facing a difficult time or a difficult decision, that they need to be reminded of your promise 
that you're gonna guide them and walk with them through this one as well, that your track record is perfect. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it just means that you're there. So maybe cling to that truth this morning as well. God, may we worship now with our whole heart. May we really own what you're calling us to do, a call to action from this morning's time in your word. In your name we pray, amen.